We were saying that Philo draws a distinction between the swift and the less sure-footed, that in the soul's quest for God, the swift will strive towards the divine logos. And Philo writes in his treatise on flight and finding that the man who is capable of running swiftly It bids not to stay to draw breath, but to pass forward to the supreme divine Logos, who is the fountain of wisdom, in order that he may draw from the stream and, released from death, gain life eternal as his prize. I think you can see, just in these two sentences, why... The early fathers regarded Philo as a Christian before Christ. The Logos as the image of God. We are created, as Genesis tells us, we are created according to the image of God. Katikona theu. So... The Logos is identified as that image. Of course, we know that Christ is the image of God and that he is the express image of the Father and he who has seen Christ has seen the Father. He who sees Christ sees the Father. He who hears Christ hears the Father because They are one. And here, remarkably, he's identified also as the wisdom of God. Sophia. Itutheu Sophia. The knowledge of God, this stream of wisdom, which the the swift, those who are capable of running swiftly, draw from this stream of wisdom, releases us from death, according to Philo. It releases us from death because we gain, through this wisdom, life eternal. And it appears that in the scheme of things, as Philo presents them, there is nothing higher than this state. This is the highest state. This is the plane of existence to which one who is capable of running swiftly is called. Now, for one less sure-footed, as Philo describes it, it directs to the power to which Moses gives the name God. So what is the power to which Moses gives the name God? Since by it the universe was established and ordered, it urges him to flee for refuge to the creative power. So it seems that Elohim is the creative power, the Bidiki Dynamis. I'd just like to make a brief digression here because 
In St. John Damascene's exact exposition of the Orthodox faith, where he gives the names of God, he talks about the names of God. He says the first name that he identifies as being the first name that we give to God is actually not Theos. Theos, Elohim, is something that we have, I think, in every language. One could say it's the product of the human mind, human reasoning, that there must be a God, however you understand that God. But interestingly and significantly, the Damascene places as the first name of God, or On, I am. That's the name that's given by revelation. It's the greatest theophany, the greatest revelation of the old dispensation. And the name is or On, which we see in almost every icon of Christ. Christ is or On. He who is. Not Do'on. We even have Do'on in our Vespers service. I don't know why. They prefer to translate O'on, he who is, as the existent or the existent one. Christ the existent one. Christ is not the God of the philosophers. Christ is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So I'm not sure what we can do about that right now, but I've noticed that it's so common. I think people think it sounds exotic or nice in some way. But the truly existent one, Do'on, that's, that's philosophy. Why? Because it's impersonal. O'on, he who is. Not only does the O, the definite article, signify the he, that it is a person, but on with omega signifies that the one who is referred to is a he. Anyway, anyway. So it's important to appreciate this because it actually makes what... Philo is saying even more remarkable. Now, to the ones who are less sure-footed, Philo says they should aim for the creative power. They should strive towards union with the creative power. Why? Because he says, knowing that the whole world was brought into being by the one referred to as Theos, the creative power, brings a vast good, even the knowledge of its maker. So coming to know one's maker produces a response, that response being love, to love him to whom it owes its being, he says. 
And then, on the third level, one who is less ready, less ready even than the less sure-footed, so a third level, it urges to betake himself to the kingly power, Vasiliki Dynamis, the kingly power, for fear of the sovereign has a force of correction to admonish the subject where a father's kindness has none such for the child. So, fear of the sovereign, it seems that we're now referring to the fear of God, all right? Beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. For fear of the sovereign has a force of correction to admonish the subject where a father's kindness has none such for the child. So where kindness would not work because of the level on which the one who is less ready exists, it's better for that person to strive towards the kingly power which will produce in that person a sense of fear, but a holy fear, a good fear that will help him to grow in his spiritual life. Now, the interesting thing here is that there's another level. Philo doesn't stop there. He says, to him who fails to reach the posts just mentioned, there is another set of goals. And surprisingly, he says that these are the gracious power which enjoins duties and that which forbids offenses. Why? Because God is a lawgiver. It's the level of the law. The level of the law, Philo places on the fourth level. Below that of the logos, below that of the creative power, below that of the kingly power, there is the level of do's and don'ts. That shows you just how, how low we sink when we relegate things to morals, to a moralism. This is not about making us good citizens. We should, of course, transcend that automatically. But it's about union with God, communion with God, becoming like God. Somebody once asked me, someone who was Protestant and quite upset with the Orthodox, so why, why do you Orthodox speak of deification? Show me where in Scripture... It says deification. Is there any passage? Is there any, any place in Scripture where you can see deification? Why do you do this? Why? And he was very upset. So I said, well, you know, we believe that when God says, let us create man in our image and after our likeness, that the likeness of God means that we become like God. And that means that we become 
by grace what God is by nature. And he didn't like that and got even more upset when I said that. I think he was just too devastated that I, I should point to the very first lines of the Holy Bible on this subject, but he refused to acknowledge that there was any sense of this at all in the words, in the words of, of Scripture. But that is what this is about, right? I mean, we mentioned what Philo said about God breathing of his divinity. He's using, he's using the language that he has at his disposal, right? This is not only pre-Nicaea, it's before Christ. But it's remarkable how much there is there. We say that all the saving work of Christ is contained there in Holy Scripture. And when we say according to the Scriptures, we mean the Old Testament. So it's remarkable and perhaps it's not so remarkable. But it is uh, greatly encouraging that this pious Jew living in what was the world's first multicultural society, Alexandria, the great city of Alexandria, is able to do here. He's unpacking the scriptures in a way that is in keeping, it seems, with, with everything that, that we believe. So there are four stages, four levels and the first and highest is that of the Logos. The second and the third pertain to those two special powers. And the third is on the level of ethics, the do's and don'ts that we are all very familiar with. Now, elsewhere, and specifically in the allegorical interpretation. Section 3, paragraphs 169 to 170, Philo becomes even more specific. He has already identified the word as the fountain of wisdom. Not just wisdom, but the source of wisdom. How can he be the source of wisdom? Isn't that God? Is that not characteristic of God alone? So it's significant that he's saying he's the fountain of wisdom, the source of wisdom, and that through this wisdom we are released from death and we gain eternal life. Now he's going to describe the Logos as the very food of the soul. And in this treatise, the allegorical interpretation, Legum Allegoriae, Philo says, you see of what sort the soul's food is. It is the word of God, continuous, resembling dew, embracing all the soul, and leaving no portion without part in itself but only on the wilderness of passions and wickedness. And it is fine and delicate both to conceive and be conceived 
and surpassingly clear and transparent to behold. And it is, as it were, coriander seed. Take a look at Exodus, where Scripture compares the manna that fell from heaven and talks about it as being like coriander seed. And the house of Israel called the name thereof manna, and it was like coriander seed, white. That's from Exodus 16.31. And in Numbers 11.7, it says, and the manna was as coriander seed. Now, Philo continues by giving a very important analogy. He says, tillers of the soil say that if you cut a coriander seed and cut it into countless pieces, each of the portions into which you cut it, if sown, grows exactly as the whole seed could have done. You chop a coriander seed into small pieces and you you sow just one of those pieces. That one tiny piece would grow just as a whole coriander seed would grow. And the point that Philo wants to make follows immediately on this. Such too, he says, is the word of God able to confer benefits both as a whole and by means of every part, yes, any part you light upon. So the Word of God, it's interesting, I'm reminded in the homilies of St. Gregory Palamas, he says, I know you can't understand everything that I'm saying now, but if you listen attentively and you understand one thing that I'm saying, that will help you to understand the whole. And it's interesting, here it's referring to the word, the logos, or logos to theo, and to rima, the spoken word of God, and it's applicable to the grace of God. Communing with God, when we come into contact with God, of course, the degree to which we experience God depends on our receptiveness, our capacity to receive what God wills to give us. But God does not reveal a part of himself. In the slightest touch of the grace of God is contained the whole God. All of God is in the grace that we experience. And we see this in the spiritual life on the level of grace, and we see this in the sacramental life on the level of the Divine Eucharist. You know that when the Lamb is consecrated, each particle contains the whole Christ. And that which remains contains the whole Christ. Christ is not diminished by being divided in parts. He's undividedly divided. That's the case with the Word of God. That's what Philo is referring to here. 
So it's a word of God or the word of God. In the philosophical context, not our main interest, but I think you can understand how new the contribution of Philo is with his focus, emphasis on the created-uncreated distinction, with his emphasis on the fact that man belongs to the created order and that even the highest part of man, every aspect of man is created, including his nous. There is no natural kinship between God and man. There is a commensurability. There is the image of God. But what does the image of God mean? It means that capacity to contain the life of God, the life of the Logos. And you see the importance of the, the centrality of the Logos in Philo's theology. The importance of grace. Uh, Father John Romanides used to say that how you understand the grace of God, the question of the grace of God, informs everything, all the doctrines of the church. And it's interesting that in the dismissal, the Apolitikion, for St. Gregory Palama, he's heralded as the preacher of grace. Seldom do the liturgical texts go into the detail of the essence, energy's distinction, because what that's all about is, what is the grace of God? The grace of God is God himself, acting, operating, involved in the life of his creature. It's his life that becomes our life as a gift. That's why it's grace. Charis, something that is given freely. More about that when we turn to Irenaeus of Lyon. But it's, as I say, remarkable that this is already to be found, at least spermatically, in Philo. There are questions about many aspects of Philo, and the created-uncreated distinction, the nature-powers distinction, and then his Logos theology, which speaks of the Logos as the one who speaks, or Legon. So, yes, God. God is... Now, all of that is being qualified significantly. But when he says it directs, he's looking at Scripture, so he's looking at the Old Testament scriptures and he's drawing from them these four levels of striving, striving to ascend towards God. So he identifies the Logos as the highest level and that to which Moses gives the name God is the creative power. So what's left? There's the Logos, there's God, 
Remember, he's in dialogue with his pagan intellectual contemporaries. He's trying to build bridges. He's speaking their language. He's writing in Greek, and he's writing in a language that is deeply influenced by the language of the philosophers. And necessarily, when he speaks of do on dos on, that which truly exists, he's using that expression, that name, that way of referring to the divine, which comes from the philosophers. When he uses it, he means something else, because as he goes on to explain and to present, what he's presenting is the personal God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. But his language, in a sense, is limited, because it's been exercised magnificently by all these philosophies, but it hasn't yet been exercised by the Holy Scriptures. That comes later, when Christianity is introduced to the Greek-speaking world. Then terms are translated from the Bible, from the apostles, from their successors, and you get a language that gives us theology. He is speaking. He's using philosophical terms. So God is an it, but he's using that in order to begin the the discussion, the dialogue, to interest his his pagan contemporaries, just as Saint Paul did when he took the example of the altar made to the unknown God. That intuition gave Saint Paul a basis to work from. Well, Philo's basis is more elaborate than that. But they're doing the same thing. They're doing exactly the same thing. Philo is trying to build bridges by which his pagan intellectual contemporaries can cross over to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Once you've identified the logos, or the level of the logos, the level of Elohim. Or the creative power, the level of the vasiligidinamis, the kingly power, and then the level of the law. Is that another power? It's not clear. Quite frankly, it doesn't seem that Philo is particularly interested in going further than the two because his mind is focused on the mercy seat, the logos. The two cherubim—that's enough for him. But the implication is that as the soul attempts to draw near to God, there are those who have been, for reasons which only the Lord knows, they've been given the ability to run swiftly. You know that that is what God gives. And it's also, to a much, much smaller degree, dependent on our own disposition. But if God gives you a vessel that can contain an entire ocean of grace, only the Lord knows why He's done that. Your part 
is to fill that, what you've been given. It may be that we've been given a tiny cup as a vessel capable of containing grace. But the important thing is not that. The important thing is whether we multiply those talents. Don't forget that as a rabbi, he's seeking through his allegorical interpretation. What Philo is doing, he's trying to go to the spiritual level of the meaning of scripture. Now it's called allegory, but what he's trying to do is to discern the spiritual significance of the scriptures. As you can see, he knows that there's something much higher than the level of Deuteronomy, the do's and don'ts. So that's where his focus is. And his contribution is often overlooked, but it's helpful to see that his focus is on scripture, but um, not in that enclosed, limited way, the literal word of the scriptures. So Philo knew that there was something beyond that, and that's important. And look at what he arrived at. We have to say, together with the early fathers, that this man must have been inspired. We've looked at biblical language to some degree. We looked briefly at Greek philosophy. And in Philo of Alexandria, you have someone who brings these two worlds together. And he brings them together in a way that is consonant with the direction that we're going in.